Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us each week to discuss conservation, biology, canine welfare, population genetics, eDNA, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today I'm here for a solo episode to round out our discrimination mini-series. We've got a couple more episodes coming up. But today I'm here to talk to you about the work that we did specifically while we were in Kenya with the scat dogs from Action for Cheetahs in Kenya in order to reduce false alerts and kind of improve specificity with those dogs. This is built off of a talk that I gave at the conference at the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants and um, and should be quite interesting. It's a little bit data heavy. We used a protocol called differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior as well as a procedure known as extinction in order to eliminate the false alerts with these dogs. So as a recap for anyone who maybe doesn't remember or is new to the podcast, in spring of 2022, myself, Rachel, and Heather took turns flying to Kenya to help work with the scat dogs at Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. What they were dealing with was that they had two highly trained and experienced conservation detection dogs, but had recently lost um, through kind of COVID and related um, factors, they had lost their entire dog team staff. So they had two new staff members who um, both had never trained dogs before. So our job was to come in and help work with the handlers and the dogs to make them a, uh, a team that was ready to go. So some relevant characters here are going to be Maddie. He is a seven-year-old Border Collie Rottweiler mix. Um, Percy, who's about a three-year-old Malinois. Edwin, who is the handler, uh, one of the handlers with Action for Cheetahs in Kenya, who's got background in, um, in agricultural sciences. And Naomi, who was the other handler at Action for Cheetahs in Kenya and had a background in conservation. You can hear both of their voices, um, as well as the voice of Action for Cheetahs in Kenya Executive Director Mary Weikstra in previous episodes of this podcast. 
So in a past work with Maddie where he had done field work, he had been up to 98% correct with, um, with the scouts that he identified. N Percy had never um, been fully fielded because as we said, we did this work in spring 2022 and Percy was um, just shy of three at that time. So she had spent kind of the bulk of her prime working years um, and prime late training years uh, during COVID. So in recent training, both Maddie and Percy were, were frequently alerting to leopard and caracal scats that were placed out in the training room. There was another consultant heading to Kenya shortly before me and uh, then following me, Heather and I were to overlap and Rachel and Heather were then to overlap. So we were going to have about three months of continuous work from the, act, uh, from the canine conservationists team. But because there was another consulting heading to Kenya before me, I kind of took a step back on training plans during uh, before coming to Kenya. And when I arrived in Kenya, the approach in training the dogs was to tell the dogs to, um, quote, no search on if they made a false alert. And in training, they were training in a small set room where there was always a correct answer. So generally within seconds after the false alert, the dog would encounter a cheetah scat and then could make a correct alert and get rewarded. So while this worked in the moment, it did not seem to be decreasing the false alert behavior over time. That's where I started digging into records. At this point, I was on the ground in Kenya and Action for Cheetahs in Kenya had a strict record keeping rule regarding the care and training of their dogs. However, um, their system for maintaining the records long-term and what to put into the records was a little bit less clear. So there was one notebook of handwritten notes that was nowhere to be found. And then the training log that we did have on hand would say things kind of along the lines of session with Percy at 1 p.m., 32 degrees Celsius, northwest wind at nine miles an hour, 28% humidity, good energy and focus. So there wasn't very much information as far as which samples were being used in training. And we couldn't really look back to see what had happened as far as a specific sample or a specific point in time where this problem had occurred. Um, and again, since Edwin had only been hired about four months earlier and Naomi about three months earlier, she, they weren't going to be able to answer any of those questions. So I did go through and interview um, some of the other staff members at Action for Cheetahs in Kenya, um, but memories were a little bit fuzzy. It sounded like at some point there may have been a mislabeled scat that was marked as cheetah, but was actually caracal or vice versa. Or perhaps there was a single sample that had consistently given the dogs issues earlier on in training and then the problem had ballooned, or perhaps both. Long story short though, the issue had never really gone away and had now expanded to just overall really low specificity in the training context. The dogs hadn't been in the field for a while, so we weren't really sure how the problem was going to present in real searches. So for my first two weeks or so on site, we basically continued with the plan of we'd put samples out, we would say no search on if the dogs made a false alert, and um, again, we just weren't seeing this problem uh, go away, the false alerts were not reducing, so we had to change something. What we did at this point was um, we put a full stop to presenting the dogs with non-target samples, and I started to think and reach out to a bunch of other mentors. Um, so of course I started with Google, and a couple searches on false alerts really didn't help much. Most of the articles online focused on helping dogs not to alert to trace, fringe, or residual odor, which wasn't really the issue here. Um, several other articles focused on competitive nose work and handler-related issues calling regarding calling alert too early, pushing the dog into making an alert with body language, or misreading a dog who's got an unclear alert behavior, such as um, nosework dogs that do a pause or a look back. So other keywords retrieved articles highlighting just how pervasive this problem is from police canines, so like expository articles about false alerts, but really nothing came up that was giving me an insight on how, rem how to remedy this problem from a training lens. 
So when I first brought this problem up to some of the senior staff at ACK, they suggested that handler queuing was the problem, um, which again is similar to what those nose work articles had said. Um, and that was a hypothesis that we could more or less test right away. So I asked the handlers to plant their feet, put their hands behind their backs, and stay in the same spot from where they release the dog and let the dog search the scent room off leash. And this did nothing to affect false alerts. So next off, I kind of went into the conservation dog literature and discourse and, you know, memories from working with my own mentors, all of the podcasts that we have done here, as well as podcasts that I listen to on James Davis's show and elsewhere that I've heard um, folks talk about conservation dog work. And there have been um, conservation dog folks who have mentioned that consistently training dogs with a negative or an off-target sample can be problematic. Um, and the way that I've basically understood this to be is that if you do a lot of repetitions in a set room or a training scenario where the dog becomes familiar with the scats and is ex being exposed to those samples while they're in kind of the emotionally heightened state of uh, and excitement of training, then when they're later on out in the field, that may in, uh, cause like a flicker, a flicker of recognition when the dog is tired, um, a bit of dopamine because um, that scent is linked to the pleasure of training in the brain, and then we get a false alert. So that's um, a pretty common hypothesis. Um, I know I've heard rogue detection teams and working dogs for conservation both um, kind of have similar ideas. Um, I think part of it is also if you're not being perfect about your odor hygiene and then when you're out training the dogs with um, you know an off-target scat you could also be cross um, cross-contaminating things or getting kind of your odor and uh, even no matter how perfect you are, a scat that comes kind of out of the fridge and then is placed in the environment might have things in common with your training samples that again could kind of be re reducing the dog's ability to stay specific. So that this whole thing kind of makes sense to me in a way, um, but it didn't quite fit in with what we were seeing with the Action for Cheetahs in Kenya team. So anyway, the dogs weren't just making mistakes in the field after long days, but they were making the mistake in training. The dogs weren't just tired or confused by a flicker of recognition on a long search. They truly didn't understand the difference in a single, simple task in a scent room. So next up, I spoke to Paul Bunker and Dr. Simone Gadbois, who are both parts of this discrimination mini series about the issues. So both of them had the same question for me. Is there enough difference between the samples for the dogs to tell the difference without um, kind of more specialized training? So we had a couple different points that we explored together here. So one, the samples were acquired from orphanages and rehab centers, which means that the animals weren't eating natural diets and could be medicated or supplemented. Um, for some dogs, this can make it challenging to swap from training targets to wild samples because they don't recognize them as the same thing. So you can imagine if you're used to sniffing giraffe poo that is from a female giraffe on some sort of birth control who is also receiving an antibiotic for a hoof infection, um, and that is all the dog has ever trained on, and then they encounter a wild sample from uh, a female, a lactating or pregnant female that is not obviously on antibiotics because she's wild, the dog might just not recognize it. However, for other dogs like Percy and Maddie, the, the problem here is that in the wild, cheetah, caracal, and leopard aren't generally eating the exact same diet. Cheetahs like gazelles, you know, little Thompson gazelles, leopards really love impala, and caracal go for much smaller things like dictics and hares and birds. So paired with medications and supplements, the training scats smelled more similar to each other than other wild scats truly would. So we were asking the dogs in training to do something that was likely harder than what it would be in the field. 
And we just didn't have enough field samples to use at the time to see if the dogs reacted better with field samples or um, to just switch over to training exclusively with those wild samples. So next up we had the how the samples were actually dried and stored. So the samples were all dried in the same open air room, leading to potential contamination as the air moved from one scent, the air moved scent from one scat to another. Worse, these samples were then stored long-term in plastic that was not species specific. Um, and that's important because plastic is permeable. Things that go into plastic come out smelling a little bit like plastic, and the plastic comes away smelling a little bit like what whatever was in there. All of the samples therefore smelled a bit like plastic and probably all smelled a bit like each other. They may even smell a little bit like old samples that had occupied the container that they were in now. Um, because it's not like they had containers that were always used for cheetah or that they got rid of containers after um, a sample was retired. They were washing and reusing them and that's not a huge deal if you're working with like glass or metal but can be really problematic with plastic. For a quick test of this particular hypothesis, I put out a few of the plastic containers that had been used previously but had been washed and were kind of in storage, ready to go for a new sample, and both dogs alerted to them, but with a little bit less speed and confidence than their typical alert. So then finally, my kind of pet hypothesis was that I was suspicious about the actual setup of the training and kind of the uh, how the matching law may be coming into this. And the matching law is basically the idea that you get what you reinforce. So if you spend a lot of time practicing behavior A, not a lot of time practicing behavior B, when you pull out your treat pouch and your animal is kind of throwing behaviors at you, trying to figure out how to get reinforcement, you're much more likely to see a higher proportion of behavior A than behavior B. Um, and this can apply in a lot of situations other than just kind of uh, potentially uh, uh, poorly set up shaping sessions, um, but that's just like an example of where we might see it the most often. So the handlers it, at ACK had spent a lot of time learning from explosive handlers, which is the biggest detection dog industry in Kenya due to terrorism. And for good reason, explosive handlers tend to be very focused on the dog's alert. The dog can't touch the sample and must maintain a perfect sit-stare alert until the handler can take appropriate action. The ACK team spent a lot of time focusing on the alert. They were doing repetition after repetition to get snappy, focused, clean sits. And if the dogs worked hard or long in a sourcing puzzle or endurance search and then didn't perform the perfect alert, the alert was fixed before rewarding the dog. So basically the dog learned that the alert was by far the most important part and even um, on kind of a job well done with the seeking and sourcing, um, the alert had to be perfect in order to get rewarded. So the ACK, ACK team was basically spending so much time training the alert that I was worried that the dogs thought their job was to alert, not to actually discriminate odors or find the correct order. Another reason that I liked this hypothesis, or another reason I kind of suspected this was part of the problem, was that dogs can be astonishingly efficient in training as soon as they encounter an odor that met some criteria. You know, you know it wasn't that they were alerting to everything we put out. If we put out cat, a domestic cat or goat scout, we weren't getting this problem. But as soon as they kind of had an odor that met some criteria in their heads, the dogs sat. And as soon as they sat, they got information in the form of either a ward or being told, no, search on. So there was basically a behavior chain happening of odor to sit to information, which leads to opportunity of reward or the reward again. It may have actually been faster to discriminate between leopard and cheetah and car or caracal and cheetah for the dogs, but that requires a lot of concentration and it might just be easier to alert to everything as a way to ask for help. And in a way, all of the alerts were being reinforced because the true alerts were being reinforced with toy play and the false alerts were being rewarded with information that led the dog to the next um, alert and therefore their reward. 
And I think it's really important here to kind of pause and say that their approach of telling the dog no, search on, is not something that universally leads to this problem. Uh, so I'm gonna, we're gonna tell a little story here um, that I think I've told before on the podcast, but it's really illustrative and it needs to come back in here. So here goes. While I was in Guatemala with Barley, about a week into our project searching for felid scats, one of our field techs offered me a delicious apricot-like fruit called a chico sapote that um, the the tech had picked from a tree on the trail. I ate a little bit of it and uh, and then shared a little bit with Barley, and we carried on our search and found a couple more scats pretty small non-event. And then the next day we went to a different area and there was far fewer scats. It was a much less dense area, but Barley kept on alerting to Chico Sapotes. And interestingly, he was specifically alerting to fresh fallen Chico Sapotes that had either broken on impact or had been um, eaten a little bit by some sort of herbivore. So at each Chico Sapote, I told him no search, which is almost the exact same cue that Edwin and Naomi were using for Percy and Maddie. I also started asking a partner to check what Barley was alerting to so that I didn't have to approach Barley and kind of risk that anticipatory dopamine dump that happens as dogs kind of expect to get their reward. Um, because seeing me approach him with um, the toy pouch on my hip is definitely enough to uh, reward Barley even if I never give him the toy or you know reward him on a neurochemical level. Um, and then within a day, Barley stopped alerting to the Chico Sapotes and has never done it again since. Um, and it was, you know, it was a very stressful day for me. This was the first time that something like this had happened. Um, and Barley probably made somewhere between eight and 15 false alerts in that day. And he did, he made some fines, probably somewhere between two and four, but very, very stressful. The field team was a really good sport about it because we had probably six or eight people in the field with us that day, um, which just adds a lot of additional pressure when something's going on with your dog. But the point here is that there was, um, I used almost the exact same approach and was able to successfully eliminate this behavior in Barley. And so I've got a couple different things that I think are why that happened here. Um, so we've got one being that the odors were really different um, between Chico Sapote and Jaguar Scat, Arg, Ocelot, Margay, Puma, Terra, whatever it is. Either way, they probably don't smell really anything like this fruit. So discrimination was easy. It wasn't that Barley was getting confused or was getting overwhelmed with trying to make a different, um, make the distinction between these things. Two, this was a very new issue. So, um, I was able to see that this approach was working and stick with it. Um, and because we don't really know the history of what was going on with ACK, there's a chance that if they had used this approach right away early on, they may have had more success. So then we had a long search and a hard search in between potential targets, which means that kind of getting informed that Barley was incorrect wasn't really a good opportunity for a reward. And it, it didn't predict that he could go on and the next thing he found in the environment was going to predict his reward. So we weren't getting that same kind of predictive power and behavior chain that um, ACK was getting. I also did get harsh with Barley at times. And by harsh, I mean that I lowered my voice um, and, uh, or lowered the pitch of my voice and increased the volume. Um, and that is more than enough to help Barley understand that I am displeased. I didn't necessarily do that as an intentional training um, tactic because I don't try to intimidate dogs as part of training plans generally. Um, but um, it happened because I was very frustrated um, and that pit may have potentially helped as well. 
And then we've also just got the fact that we've got different dogs and different learning histories. Barley is very highly responsive and could be described as a dog that wants to be right. He and I are very, very tightly bonded. Um, and therefore kind of my body language and my frustration may have uh, played off and influenced him. He also didn't have that same history of an extraordinarily heavy reinforcement history for his alert, um, the same way that those um, that Maddie and Percy did. And um, potentially that means that for Barley, it's easier to understand that his job is to search and is to find the correct thing because he doesn't think that, he, he never has thought that his job is to alert. So I suspected that our job now was to teach P Percy and Maddie that the alert wasn't what was paid, it was that the odor paid. This was going to have to be paired with a strategy that effectively removed any and all reinforcement for the false alerts, um, particularly if we wanted to avoid climbing up the ladder um, of the humane hierarchy, which we'll get into in a minute, um, and avoid kind of resorting to punishment for the dogs. So first, I wanted to start out with some low-hanging fruits. We threw out any unlabeled or old samples, samples that consistently gave the dogs issues, and or samples that we had, and samples that we had reason to believe may be contaminated. We then purchased brand new storage containers for all of the scats and created a new protocol for drying and then storing the scats with three layers of protection between each species. So each new container was labeled species specific to ensure that over time they would only contaminate, cross contaminate between their own species. Um, and I will say that due to financial limitations for ACK, these containers were still plastic rather than preferred metal or glass storage systems. At this point, I do believe that um, another consultant, Leo, um, who is continuing to work with ACK, has at this point managed to get them over some other storage uh, containers that are uh, a little bit more uh, appropriate than plastic. Next up, I started working through what our protocol was going to look like. I decided to opt for an extinction protocol. I had a hunch that the reinforcement for the false alerts was about information and expediency for the dogs, so I wanted to remove that reinforcement. We carefully removed the reinforcer for the unwanted false alerts while also heavily rewarding the incompatible behavior of a correct alert. So that's why it was both kind of differential reinforcement of an incompatible behavior and extinction. Um, and now I'd like to kind of take a quick pause and talk about least intrusive, minimally aversive training and the humane hierarchy and talking about uh, and how that played into this talk or played into this approach. So before jumping in to using extinction and uh, differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior, which from now on we are going to call DRI, I wanted to ensure that we had adequately explored earlier steps within the humane hierarchy, which is an ethical framework that many professional dog trainers adhere to as a way to help guide training decisions um, to while protecting the welfare of our canine learners. So first up, there's wellness. We had already been working on enrichment, clear training, and appropriate exercise for the dogs. I'd been working on the handlers for their clicker skills, building puzzle toys, more cooperative bathing protocols, and cooperative care overall for the dog's daily health checks. The dogs were getting long um, walks every day. They were getting training. They were getting agility sessions. The dogs may have been, uh, the dogs could benefit from additional kind of human contact during their off time and kind of relaxing uh, around their people. But overall, given the intent of the work and the heat during their Ken the Kenyan days, the dogs seemed to be quite well to me. They were under the care of a veterinarian and I had no reason to suspect that this concern was a veterinary issue. So next up we get to antecedent arrangement. 
And this would be part of the training that we used by intentionally placing scat samples in a way that made the correct choice easier and more salient than the incorrect choice for the dogs. The dogs were already being presented with a correct choice in each training session, which in some ways is contrary to best practices in detection dog training as the dogs should be introduced to blank searches where there is no um, target quite uh, consistently. However, um, we maintained the practice early on of making sure that there was always a cheetah scat available um, so the dogs always had something that was correct for them. Uh, so then up, then we have positive reinforcement. A key component of our plan was to heavily reinforce the dogs for their correct responses, and part of this was also reducing the criteria for a correct response. So earlier I talked about the high criteria that the handlers held for the alert where they did the perfect, focused, intense sit stare for several seconds at a time, and we shifted our reinforcement point to the moment that the dog sniffed cheetah scat, and then we progressed to just starting an alert where the dog is like bending their hind legs and then moved on to reinforcing a full prolonged alert. I did expect frustration for the dogs as we started this plan. You can reasonably expect frustration every any time you remove expected reinforcement for behavior. And this is especially true for the sort of dogs that we select for detection dog work, which are dogs that care intensely about their reinforcers and will work hard to get them no matter what's in their way. So we've essentially got a pair of dogs here that were selected specifically to push their own limits and keep trying even on lean schedules of reinforcement. So we were going to have um, extinction to work through and extinction bursts can be a, a bitch. So we essentially had a pair of dogs that were selected specifically to push their own limits and keep trying even on lean schedules of reinforcement, which brings us to the concept of an extinction burst, um, which is that we expected false alerts to increase in frequency, duration, or intensity before getting better. I prepped the handlers for this phenomenon and emphasized that communication was the reinforcer that we were eliminating, not the toy, because they were not presenting the toy um, for false alerts, but redirecting or correcting the dogs or helping the dogs out in any way was something we specifically could not do. And this was going to be hard on all of us because we like to be able to communicate with our dogs, but we really were hoping that through antecedent arrangement and smart training, we could reduce the intensity and frustration of that extinction burst. I will say now, knowing what I do now, which is I'm about a little bit more than a year out from when I worked as a consultant with ACK. I now would be taking a slightly more airless approach where we would use occlusion seals on jars or like closed Tupperwares with holes drilled in the top for those negative off-target samples and then have the target samples out in the full air so that the off-target samples actually had less odor available to the dogs and use that as a way to help um, help ease them along and nudge them into the correct choice. That's not something we did but is something that I would do now and would have reduced frustration um, further. So our overall plan was to set up small searches for the dogs where both cheetah and an off-target scat were available. The dogs would then be released into the area while the handler stayed put as a way to reduce confusion from handler movement or verbal cues. At first, the cheetah scat would be closer to the starting point in order to attempt the to help the dog encounter that odor first. In each repetition, in most cases, the scat locations would be rotated. At first, we would not put the off-target scat in the location where the cheetah scat had just been. Um, to kind of avoid tricking the dogs who both, um, and Percy in particular, had tendencies to check the most recent cheetah scat placement first when released to search. So she would kind of go back to wherever that cheetah scat had been. And at first we were really careful not to put Caracol or Leopard scat in that location and kind of trick her. Um, we did bring that in intentionally later on though. We then um, would click and reinforce the dog for sniffing, starting to alert, or ultimately full alerts on the cheetah scat. At first, I ran the clicker while Edwin and Naomi handled the toy play, which allowed me to control the timing and criteria for each um, repetition. 
And then if the dog was to alert to the off-target scat, the handler and I would not move or give any cues and we just waited. Um, we did have the plan to interrupt the dogs if the dog pawed at, mouthed, or otherwise interacted with the sample in a way that we didn't like. Um, and this luckily only happened once. Um, Maddie was given a verbal correction for it and um, it never happened again, which is something that I think is really important to bring out because if you've got a dog whose frustration tendencies tend to be directed at the target, this approach would have to be taken um, undertaken very carefully and potentially quite differently from how we did it. Um, I want it to be really, really clear here that this is just the way that we did this one time. This is a case study. Um, part of this thing that got us into this mess with ACK, which was that overemphasis on alerts, was also what saved us. The dogs tended to false alert harder during their extinction bursts rather than aggressing towards the sample, pawing at it, mouthing at it. Um, and that may not be the case for um, your dog at home if this is a problem you've got. So next up, I started a Google Sheet where we tracked the following items, which were the date, the dog, the handler, the ID of the cheetah scat, the ID of the non-target scat, the repetition number that we were on within the session, um, and then our number of correct alerts, our number of false alerts, our number of correct dismissals, our number of misses, and the duration of each false alert as well. So correct, just to force definitions here, a correct alert was when the dog sat at the cheetah scat. A false alert was if the dog sat at a non-cheetah scat for the purpose of duration versus number of false alerts. If the dog took, stepped, took steps away and then returned to the scat, that was counted as a second or separate false alert. But if the dog just kind of readjusted a sit where they stood uh, and stared or they stood up a little bit and then planted their bum again, um, all of that kind of within one alert event would count as one alert until the dog actually stepped away and then the clock would restart with a different alert, um, false alert kind of number. And then we've got a correct dismissal and a miss, which both of which we defined rather narrowly. Um, just because we needed to be able to code things properly. So with our correct dismissals, the dogs sniffed non-cheetah scats um, and did not alert. The dogs knows how to drop to indicate sniffing. We didn't count passing by a scat without kind of a visible sniff as a correct dismissal, which kind of, which may not be correct. And we weren't doing this in a lineup scenario. We were doing this in more of an open area. So it was really hard to kind of say for sure if the dog had gotten odor and we chose to be um, rather narrow with that definition. So the next, um, a Miss is if the dog sniffed a cheetah scat without alerting. If the dog never checked the scat, so they ran right past it or never approached it, we did not mark it as a miss. Um, and again, we just kind of chose to define these things rather narrowly. Um, let's see what else. So then a repetition was kind of a from the word go to the completion of the reward sequence um, and a session was a kennel to kennel period of time so we would have a single session in a day that may include generally six repetitions in a, in a day um, sometimes we did more than one session in a day and sometimes are there are more or fewer repetitions but overall kind of a, a repetition is a smaller point within the session then within our first three days of training, we saw very clear extinction bursts for both of their dogs and their false alerts. So for, for, for Percy, um, for her first 15 repetitions, she was averaging zero to one false alerts per repetition. Um, those first 15 repetitions took place over the first day and a half. Um, and then partway through her third session, which was in the afternoon of the second day, um, she had two false alerts in a row and two repetitions in a row. 
Um, so she had two false alerts per repetition twice in a row, which was a change. That was an increase for her. And then on repetition 19, Percy had eight false alerts. And after that, she only had nine more false alerts total, four of which were in the next three days of training. So, um, and I'll include some of these graphs in the show notes for y'all so you can see these because these things are um, really kind of better visualized in my opinion. So then we did look at Percy's duration of false alerts, and that just didn't show quite as clear of an extinction burst. It does show her false alerts getting generally shorter uh, over time. So within her 20th session, the average duration of her false alert was over a minute, which was the longest one. So we had in repetition 19, she had a eight false alerts. And then in repetition 20, she had her longest ever false alert. After that one, um, in repetition 20, all of her false alerts were under about 25 seconds, um, with most of them lasting more like 10 seconds, um, and then dropping off pretty sharply after repetition 30. Her last couple false alerts were all um, kind of under, under 10 seconds, very, very short. So then we've got Maddie. He's the much more experienced dog with over 100 confirmed cheetah scat finds under his collar. He's a bit of a softer dog and isn't quite as easily aroused as Percy. He likes to play with his toys, but isn't kind of the sharpest, sharpest, driviest dog around, which is different from Percy. She is a working bred Malinois from a kind of professional kennel. So Percy very much so was that like typical, very, very, very toy oriented, very intense working dog. Um, and this is really interesting to me to point out because overall Maddie's false alerts were harder for us to get rid of. Over that first that month or so of training that we did, Maddie had far more resurgencies than Percy. And at first this surprised me because I would have expected the less driven dog to make fewer errors of commission. So I kind of, the way I've always thought of it is that if a dog is absolutely desperate for their reinforcer, I would kind of expect that dog to gamble more. But Maddie's behavior suggested that perhaps because the ball was less reinforcing for him, withholding the ball was less clear of a communication method for him uh, than it was for Percy. And I'm not really sure here. That's just one of my hypotheses. So unlike Percy, Maddie's extinction burst isn't really best described through the number of false alerts made per repetition. Um, when I kind of graphed out his number of false alerts per repetition, he was still making false, pretty regular errors well into 60 or 70 repetitions out of about 125 repetitions that we did total. And Percy really just didn't have as many false alerts after her initial extinction burst, um, which again was kind of in that 1920 range. However, Maddie showed a very clear change in the duration of his false alerts. His first few false alerts were 13 to 42 seconds, which was definitely longer than Percy's in general, but nothing that had me really worried about this um, kind of attempt at waiting him out. But then we got to his 10th repetition, which was the last of session two on day two. In this alert, Maddie really dug in and alerted for four minutes and 15 seconds. I figured that this was his extinction burst, um, and then his the section next day had no false alerts for Maddie. And that's where I made a mistake. I got way too excited and I pushed Maddie way too far based on his experience rather than basing my uh, training decisions on kind of smart training principles. The next day I expanded the search area to include a pretty large section of camp rather than just our little training area. Um, and that area was closer to the side of like a basketball court versus the size of like a racquetball court. Um, this meant that Maddie was now far less likely to encounter the correct target odor um, and couldn't really rely on other visual aids to clearly guide him on where to check next. I used the same scat as in the last repetition, thinking that that would help because he just so easily dismissed it six times the day before, but I was wrong. His first false alert on day three was an absolute disaster. Maddie went from sitting 
to laying down to rolling over on one hip and then to my absolute horror and kind of Edwin's befallment um Maddie started to doze off um and I really didn't have a contingency plan for this so we did ultimately interrupt the nap and end the training session there I had a nice little cry um thought about becoming an accountant or something um but at least I can say that it doesn't appear that Maddie was desperately frustrated by this false alert um I like to think that had he been really distressed I would have interrupted the false alert much sooner um so even though that long false alert was not at all my goal um I was really not planning on having to go through that um it appears that it did do the trick for the remainder of the 125 sessions most of Maddie's false alerts were two to eight seconds with just two alerts lasting between 15 and 25 seconds so we had a huge drop off in alert duration after that um and then by the end of our third day of training both dogs had gone through the worst of their extinction bursts um although of course we couldn't have done that yet and this is where I wish that I had had clearer progression criteria for the plan. Um, in many good progression plans, benchmarks of success would be clearly defined to determine when to move up to the next step. We talked about, we heard this um, in the episode with Conservation Dogs Collective and Auburn University, where they talked about having 80% success at a given criteria before increasing that criteria. And I really wish that I had done a better job of that with the ACK team. But after that fiasco with Maddie's 10-minute alert, we did take a step back, repeated and repeated a few more sessions with a variety of off-target scats in the initial training area before hitting on another idea to help us kind of split out um, how do we start kind of expanding search area and increasing challenge without having another uh, catastrophe like we'd had with Maddie. Um, so I adjusted a bit, creating a new search area on the other side of camp. Um, so in the first search area, they were using kind of two liter bottles that were cut in half um, and then buried partially in the sand. So you had these little pits of two liter soda bottles that scats could be dropped into. So they were visually occluded and the dog had something to kind of visually target themselves towards. Very clever, um, low budget option. But it made it really hard to expand search area because the dogs were kind of targeting those bottles. So um, I used some trash, rocks, sticks, and you know whatever else I could find to make some little blinds for the scats, which eliminated visual cue of the bottles and made it a little bit easier to kind of have these visual spots to check that I could move or um, kind of just build more rocks, uh, rock structures to hide scats or kind of start being able to expand out our search area a little bit more systematically. And again, I think this could have been much more systematic, but overall our approach worked pretty well. Um, and I do want to mention here that at the same time as all of this, um, because these these sessions were probably taking eh, 20 to 40 minutes a day most days, and we were doing this almost every day, but the dogs and handlers were also getting ongoing training in handling the dogs for expanded search areas where we were doing expanded searches with just targets placed out and kind of building up that skill separately. The handlers were learning about search strategy and odor dynamics and airflow and field safety and cooperative care and all sorts of stuff. And we expected all this training to ultimately combine really well. Um, by building up on specific t skills separately and then combining them ultimately. Um, by this point, Heather had arrived. Um, she was exhausted. She was jet lagged. She had, I don't know, like 40 hours of travel on her way to Kenya, but she put her gloves on and got to work right away with Edwin. And um, we fine tuned our plan a little bit and I headed back to the U.S. Heather continued working on expanding the dogs out into more realistic field scenarios, the discrimination training and all the stuff I, um, I mentioned earlier. And then after a couple weeks, the third co-founder of Canon Conservationist, Rachel, arrived in Kenya and she took things over from Heather. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. 
Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationist.org slash shop. So Rachel continued building on the expansion of the search area that Heather had done, and we were really working on getting the dogs up to a more realistic field search while maintaining this higher level of specificity. Rachel and Heather also did quite a bit of work on alert duration. So while I was in Kenya, most of the alerts that we were rewarding, the correct alerts, were very, very short. Rachel and Heather started layering back in the duration of the alerts in order to A, ensure that we hadn't broken the dog's alerts, and luckily it did come back very easily, and B, to ensure that the dogs weren't basically um, guessing in another way by just alerting, uh, and then if they didn't get a click right away, they knew they, were, they knew they were wrong and they could move on, so we wanted to kind of rebuild those alerts, and we did see that a couple times with Percy as we started um, withholding the click to build the alert duration. She did kind of hesitate a couple times, think about leaving the scat and we were able to kind of like uh, quick click for that behavior which is not really what you want but um, to avoid having her fully leave and have that experience and then rebuild the alert from there so that was really important and then when Rachel showed up she started introducing handler movement so at first Rachel simply had the handlers hold a flexi lead and allow the dogs to move through the search area she then started introducing movement and leash pressure from the handlers we didn't have time to introduce exercises like um, one that I know of called handlers a dummy in which the handler intentionally checks their phone at an inopportune time turns away from the dog moves away from the dog intentionally kind of disengages from the dog or moves the dog away from a true target or moves in a way that kind of guides the dog towards a false target um, and the dog just learns to really trust themselves. Um, again, that's not something that we did with the team and I, I really wish that we had had time and we have communicated that to them since, uh, but it's, you know, it's always easier to do these things in, in person. Some other things that we introduced around this time were blind searches where we were layering in that the handler um, was unaware of the location or of the target or the non-target. Um, and we were kind of careful about how we did this because this sort of training is mostly for the handler. When dogs are still unreliable on their alerts, it introduces too much uncertainty to have the handlers also unsure of the correct answer. So until you can really trust that your dog is generally correct, you don't want to not know whether or not they're making the right choice. Um, it would be like kind of grading a test in a subject that you were still learning yourself or still unsure of the answers on or still unsure of the answers on. Um, once we did start to see consistently high rates of errorless repetitions, we layered in smaller and larger searches. Um, we layered in smaller and larger blind searches. Heather, Rachel, or I was always present to confirm the alerts and support the handlers, so these were always kind of single blind rather than double blind searches. Rachel also started introducing the dog to the concept of blank searches where there was no scat present. This was really important to confirm that the dogs could continue to correctly ignore off-target scats when there was no cheetah scat present. In real searches, the scats may be spaced so far apart that the dog can't actually compare them. And then in small searches, it's important to occasionally introduce the dogs to the concept that sometimes they're not going to find anything and then continue learning that in larger and larger areas. In the live searches, handlers do generally place gimmies to ensure that the dogs are going to make a find, but it's not always possible and it's best practice to avoid priming the dog to always make a find or particularly always make a find in kind of a specific amount of time. 
So then Rachel finally also included multiple off-target samples in a given search. So she introduced the team to searches with multiple off-target scouts, teaching the dogs that may, they may need to ignore multiple scouts of off-target species before they got to encounter a scout of their target species. In the 18 repetitions that Rachel did where there were multiple off-target scouts or zero cheetah scouts, she, uh, she observed zero false alerts. So, hooray! So as we kind of went through our data analysis, kind of post-Kenya, I was really curious to see if different species or samples produced more false alerts for the dogs. And kind of long story short here is there were a couple samples that gave us more trouble than others. Maddie had the most trouble with Leopard 3, while Percy struggled with Caracol 1. Um, this is a little bit harder to kind of break out and actually understand, though, than it sounds at first. Um, so for example, Percy had 15 total false alerts regarding Caracol 1, but eight of those false alerts were in that single repetition where she had eight false alerts. So Caracol 1 just happened to be in use during her extinction burst, which happened to include really, really, uh, with, which happened to include a lot of false alerts. So then you can also um, see in our in our data that there were no false alerts with Caracol 4, Caracol 5, or Leopard 4, um, which, you know, does that mean that those samples are magically better than the others? I don't think so. My guess here is that those samples were used later in training, so they're introduced when the dogs were already making much lower numbers of false alerts total, and those samples were acquired after implementing our new collection and storage protocols. The, so those samples were likely cleaner than new samples. Um, they didn't have any contamination of, you know, any of the sorts that we had talked about earlier, dog slobber, anything like that. Um, but I suspect the biggest thing is that those samples just weren't used during the first four days of training when the dogs made the vast majority of their false alerts. The false alert rate was also broadly similar between leopard and caracal scouts, so there wasn't um, a huge difference there. Um, we did also want to look at handlers and see how that influenced our false alerts. So Action for Cheetahs in Kenya works on a six-week on, two-week off schedule that ensures that the dogs are cared through throughout the weekends, but handlers receive some time off. This also kind of helps the handlers travel long distances between the field site and their home, which may be, you know, 10, 15 hours of travel um, during their off time, which obviously you can't do that for a weekend trip, but you can if you're getting two weeks off every so often. The point here being, Naomi was off for her two-week off period during the first half of my training protocol and missed the first 115 or 155 of the total 290 repetitions. So there was really no way to make a direct comparison between the handlers for early training. Naomi simply wasn't handling the dogs while they made the bulk of their false alerts. Likewise, Edwin left for his leave during the second half of training and was not present for repetition 186 to 290. Um, so it looks like Edwin was handling, um, so anyway, we can't compare the handler, the effect of handlers on the dogs in this particular case, because sure, Edwin was handling the dogs for 58 of their 63 total false alerts, or 92% of the false alerts, but that's just because he was handling the dogs during their, um, extinction bursts, uh, leading up to and after them. So next up, we wanted to make sure that all of this training, all of this extinction had not made the dogs hyper-specific. Misses are a little bit harder to quantify than false alerts, as we talked about earlier. Um, but both Maddie and Percy hardly ever investigated a cheetah scout without learning. What we did see is that nearly 20% of what we had coded as a miss was attributed to Percy on the second day of training. So, and I unfortunately no longer have video of this day. If I remember right, it seemed like the fact that we weren't rewarding for the off-target samples um, kind of just blew her mind and she was very confused at first and she was just kind of running around sniffing things and not alerting to anything a little bit on that second day of training. The dogs had lower miss rates with the oldest and most familiar scats. 
as well as the scats that were introduced latest in the training protocol. Then the, we had the highest miss rates with cheetah scat 14, 10, and 13. All three of those scats were newer scats to dogs, but were acquired before implementing our new collection protocols. So nearly 60% of our total misses could be attributed to those three scats, and most of those misses overlapped with Percy's misses on May 10. Um, the second bump in misses could be attributed to a change in search setup, but we were really excited to not see an increase in miss rate as we expanded the search area later on in training. Overall, we felt really confident that our training reduced the false alerts for these two dogs and was not reducing the dog's ability to generalize to new cheetah scouts. In other words, we were able to increase the specificity of these dogs without necessarily losing our sensitivity. Our last on-day, on-the-ground day of training with ACK took place June 16th, 2022. It took about six weeks to implement this entire program, and since the completion of the project, ACK no longer really regularly does discrimination training with the dogs. They'll kind of bring out these scats every so often, do a quick test. If there's a problem, then they will return to this plan, and if there's not, they won't continue hammering it. So they're not exposing the dog to off-target scats almost every single training session, almost every single day, which I think is a really good move. When I had last communicated with the team, the dogs were not really making ongoing false alerts in training or in field work, but it's always possible that these dogs could experience what we call spontaneous recovery, so we've reminded the team to stay vigilant. So that is an overview of one case study, one time, that worked, again, one time to improve discrimination skills in some dogs that were already struggling with this. Uh, and I hope you all learned a lot and maybe have some questions swirling around your heads. We're definitely gonna have to do kind of a listener Patreon Q&A at the completion of our discrimination mini series. And um, so we'll stay tuned for that. And I'm definitely eager to hear any questions or comments about this particular protocol and um, see what y'all think. Um, as always, I hope that you feel inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find canine conservationists to hire us for training plans or training your dog or field work or anything like that, or join our course or join our Patreon or any of those lovely things, t-shirts, mugs, bento boxes, all at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back in your earbuds next week. Bye.